Experts in sociology who study the effects of technology in our lives as modern people say that technology is making us dumber as a society. When's the last time you memorized somebody's cell phone number or had to memorize certain things from an encyclopedia? I mean, we can just ask Siri if we don't know something. Experts also say that our sense of direction has become worse since we can just go into Google Maps to find out wherever we need to go. And I had this experience a few weeks ago. As a South African, I have to go through the entire driving process in Norway to get a license, unlike the Americans who are very lucky. Um, But on my last drive, they do something called a map drive, where basically what you have to do is they give you a few areas and you have to find out how to get to those areas. And so I had everything planned out, how I was going to drive, which signs we were going to follow. And I told the guy who was the one telling me and um, educating me on driving my plans. And he was like, why, why would you do all of that? I mean, you're not driving a black London cab. You, you can just go into Google Maps to find out where you need to go. And I found this was quite strange, but I was really glad because I would have no clue where I was going if it wasn't for Google Maps. And this is the line of thought we pick up in the Gospel of Mark today. We see the followers of Jesus with him literally traveling from Galilee to Jerusalem, but in need of direction, not knowing where they're going. Not in terms of their location, but in terms of what it means to follow Jesus. In this passage today, then, Jesus provides his disciples with a roadmap for following him. Just like Google Maps providing us with direction and correction where we're going and when we turn wrong, Jesus provides his followers then, as well as now, with directions and corrections as we seek to follow him. The sermon title today, therefore, is A Roadmap for Discipleship. A Roadmap for Discipleship. So we pick the story up in verse 30. Follow with me in your Bibles. And verse 30 to 32 essentially provides us with a sort of introduction to this roadmap where Jesus reminds his followers that he will be killed and be raised again after a few days. This is ultimately the destination of the journey that we're all on. We will all at some point die, and our hope as Christians is to be resurrected. He's also telling his followers what his journey will be. He will die on a cross and be resurrected. His followers should expect something similar. So as we seek to follow Jesus to our death and hopefully our resurrection if you're a christian your hope is resurrection jesus provides us with a roadmap for following him it's interesting though that throughout this teaching today we will see that even though jesus gives his followers directions and corrections they're without understanding this is why this roadmap is so important that even though jesus gives his followers direction they still need more help to follow him We cannot rightly follow Jesus unless he was the one giving us directions and instructions. An interesting note about these opening passage or verses is the fact that Jesus is no longer going to be killed by the Jews, but he's going to be killed by men. We see in the the Greek that the words are actually more easier to understand, but it's actually a play on words where it's actually saying the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. Whereas in this first passion prediction, Jesus was going to be betrayed into the hands of the Jewish leaders. We see humanity being the reason for Jesus' death in the second prediction. 
There's a very famous quote that a poet Robert Burns coined where he spoke about man's inhumanity to man. Basically, our inability to be humane towards each other. We see this in the time of the Nazis or with the Russia-Ukraine war where we are really bad at being humans to other humans. And we see this in the case of Jesus, not man's inhumanity towards other men, but to the Son of God incarnate. Another interesting point before we continue is to note that Jesus is handed over by who? Well, the text seems to imply that he's handed over by God into the hands of men. So when we look at this story and his further passion predictions going forward, we should have this image of God giving Jesus over for us. So follow with me in verse 33. After this first teaching concerning his death and resurrection, Jesus then asks his disciples what they were doing, what they were discussing on the way. And this causes Jesus to stop. He literally sits down. The text says he sits down, takes a stop. And this is our first point, our, our, our first stop, as it were, on this roadmap. It's the upside down kingdom of heaven. The upside down kingdom of heaven. So on our first stop, as Jesus sits with his disciples to teach them, we see a big misunderstanding coming over the disciples. They're not only misunderstanding the nature of Jesus' mission, but they're also misunderstanding the kingdom of which he is the king. Right? They're discussing who is going to be the greatest in a physical way. Now this makes sense. Their expectation for a Messiah was a great king who would overthrow the chains of those who were oppressing them, overthrowing the Greek society, that they as a Jewish nation would rise up and have this Messiah. And so, obviously, this great Jewish Messiah needs a great kingdom and great second-in-command, a great treasurer, perhaps a great secretary. And this is what they were discussing. What is their position going to be in this kingdom of Jesus? But this dispute between the disciples reveals the great difference between Jesus and his followers. They, were dis they wanted distinction, recognition, whereas Jesus comes as God, humbly, as a man. We actually see this contrast in all three of Jesus' passion predictions. Remember a few weeks ago when, when Peter rebukes Jesus? We see Jesus saying that he's going to die and be raised. And Peter's like, no, this cannot happen. This wasn't Peter's expectation. And we'll see in a few weeks that when Jesus a third time predicts his death and resurrection, the two brothers, James and John, discuss who's going to be sitting with Jesus in glory. In all three of these predictions of his death and resurrection, Jesus speaks about the necessity that he will be rejected, that he will suffer and that he will die, ultimately be resurrected. And this is followed by his disciples discussing their ambition for power, for status, for position. Jesus speaks about surrendering his life, whereas his followers speak about fulfilling their lives. He counts the cost of discipleship, whereas they count their assets in an earthly manner. The disciples have yet to learn that the rewards of discipleship come as a consequence of following Jesus on a costly way to his death and ultimately their own. 
So what Jesus tells them in these verses sounds completely upside down. He says, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and a servant of all. Now just think about those words. We've all heard them as Christians. We're like, yeah, yeah, that sounds very Christian. But take that away. Put it in a secular context. That makes no sense at all. How can the person who's last be first? How can the one who serves others be counted as great in any sense? I think it's important to be reminded here that Jesus does not reject prominence or greatness. He merely redefines what it means to be great. The challenge to his disciples and to us today is, what does it mean to be great in the eyes of God? And the answer is that there's nothing greater in God's eyes than giving of oneself, serving others. There is no greater work than serving. There is no greater position than that of being a servant. An important aspect that we must be reminded of here is that service in God's economy it's not out of compulsion. So when you're being paid to serve, it's out of compulsion. You have to do it. You're being paid. And it's not begrudgingly like a child cleaning their room. You know, the child thinks he's serving his parents and it's begrudging. He doesn't want to do it. Service in God's kingdom is not like that. Service in God's kingdom grows out of love for one's neighbor. It's out of love towards those whom we are serving. Service to one another is the primary way that we as believers imitate and fulfill the mission of Jesus. This is why we should seek to serve one another. When we serve each other, we imitate Christ. When we serve each other, we fulfill the mission of Christ. And Jesus makes this point clear by taking a child in his arms, saying, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. This illustration might be lost to many of us, especially if you grew up in Norway, where kids have a lot of rights and in many cases run their households. But in the context in which Mark is writing, children were the lowest class citizens. They were dependent on their parents. They were dependent on those around them because a lot of things could kill them. There were a lot of sicknesses killing them. So they had no power, no status, very few rights. They were entirely dependent on others. They were in the neediest and the lowest in society. And what Jesus is teaching his followers here by pointing to this child is that we are to regard those as insignificant in this life, in this world, as significant in the kingdom, significant enough actually to serve. The upside-down kingdom of God requires us not to only serve, but to serve those who are insignificant, those of no social standing, those who have no status. And I think it's quite easy to see why. How easy is it to serve those who are regarded as great in society? I mean, it's really easy. If a president had to come and we had to serve him, that's really easy. Why? Well, you can probably get something back from a person who is regarded highly in society. Serving those who are prominent comes naturally to most of us since we actually view ourselves as lower to them. What benefits are there in serving those who have no status? We actually view ourselves as higher than them. They can't give us anything back. 
These are the people that we are called to serve by Christ. Do we do that as Christians? Do we serve those who society deems as insignificant? Do we serve those who we perhaps view as insignificant or lower than us? This is a great challenge to the disciples as well as to us. In verse 38, Jesus continues then. We find our second stop on this roadmap of discipleship. On the second stop, we see an unfamiliar hitchhiker wanting to get on the bus. An unfamiliar exorcist wanting to be part of the twelve and they not thinking that there is enough space for him on this bus. So the second point is called, there is enough space for unfamiliar hitchhikers. Enough space for unfamiliar hitchhikers. And this teaching moment comes with John coming to Jesus saying, Teacher, we saw somebody casting demons out in your name. We tried to stop him because he was not following us. Really ironic. Firstly, well, he wasn't following us, says John. Not following you, Jesus. He wasn't following us, the prominent, highly regarded disciples. (laughs) We can still see they don't really get this whole kingdom thing. They think that they're worthy of being followed. They're the ones who are prominent in this economy of God. And secondly, as you remember last week, they were actually struggling to cast out demons last week like Peter preached. And now they're trying to stop someone who's doing something they failed to do just the previous chapter before. Which is interesting since Jesus teaches them that it's impossible for somebody to cast out demons who is a person of faith a person who is part of the kingdom of God. And so they're actually trying to stop someone doing something with faith. Very ironic. But Jesus continues and he tells them not to prohibit this exorcist from doing the work since it is impossible for anyone to do a miracle in his name and say something bad the next moment. Because whoever whoever is not against us is for us. In this, we see Jesus actually being more inclusive of outsiders than his followers. For them, they were this clique of 12. They were the followers of Jesus, and there was no space for anybody outside of their clique to be a part of those called his followers. And Jesus is saying, no, if if that person is not against us, he's for us. Now, easy is it to form cliques within church, our groups, our churches. Now, we're in Norway And this is not really the case. There's not a lot of Christians, but we have visitors from Ireland. And in a very recent history, we know that Protestants and Catholics killed each other. And we see this in a lot of countries where Christianity is thriving, that many churches refuse to share fellowship with others from different denominations. Whether they differ on things like baptism or other doctrinal matters, is they would form cliques and draw lines of separation, yet... They're actually all part of God's kingdom, all part of God's family. And I think it's similar to the first rebuke, right? So it's very easy to serve those who are highly regarded, serve those who are full of status. Again, how easy is it is for us to form cliques with those who are like us? It's much more difficult to spend time with people who are different to us to include those who do not look like us or believe like us. 
In both instances, Jesus is challenging his disciples on their comfort levels within the kingdom of God. We should be prepared to serve those who make serving uncomfortable. We should be prepared to include those who make inclusion of them uncomfortable. We should be prepared to stop and pick up the unfamiliar hitchhiker. If he's not against us, he's for us and ultimately with us in the kingdom and family of God. Jesus finishes this teachable moment with his disciples by pointing at the cost of following him. We see the things which we need to be aware of, the possible bumps in the road, as well as the things we need to give up, the things we need to count as we follow Jesus. And the third stop, therefore, is counting the cost of following Jesus. As with any journey, we need to know what it's going to cost. And it's the same with following Jesus. It's going to cost us something. And I think many times preachers today make it sound as if following Jesus comes without any cost. And this is not what Jesus tells his disciples. There are several things we need to count as we seek to follow him. Yet, as I hope I will illustrate, it's totally worth it. So as we continue on this third stop, we will, together with the disciples, count this cost as we follow Jesus. So Jesus starts by telling his disciples that they should be aware of the little ones in the kingdom of God. His disciples should not cause one of the ordinary or little ones in the kingdom to sin. And I think what Jesus is seeking to do is he's seeking to take this little child that he has shown those of insignificance in the world, those of little faith, as well as this exorcist, someone who's not like them, people who are unfamiliar or weak. We should not cause their faith in Christ to be diminished or to be strangled, to be killed. Jesus says it would be better if a millstone were hung around their necks than if the faith of these little ones was destroyed. The Greek word here actually means to stumble or to offend. So just think about when you stump your toe and you, you fall over something or you stumble. This is the image that Jesus has. Is his followers should not cause a person who is a little one in the kingdom to stumble or to fall in sin. He's seeking to show them that the punishment for causing a little one in the kingdom to fall or to stumble is judgment from God. That is why it is better to hang a millstone around your neck. The text doesn't say better than what, but it's implied it's better to drown yourself with a millstone around your neck than the impending judgment of God to those who cause little ones in the kingdom to stumble. Now, how does this look practically? Does this mean that if I drink a beer and a person who used to be an alcoholic drinks a beer, relapses into sin, is, is that my fault? Do I need then to hang a millstone around my neck? I don't think the context in this text allows for that. I don't think a person's sin is going to be held responsible to us. I don't think a person is responsible if a young person sins that the pastor or the person teaching them is responsible. I think every person is responsible for their own sins. But in this instance, I think Jesus is referring to the way we act towards others within a church context or a personal context to those part of the kingdom of God. Not serving those least in the kingdom. Not receiving those 
who are insignificant in the kingdom and forming cliques. These are two great examples of ways in which people's faith can be shipwrecked and have indeed been shipwrecked. There are many examples of a poor person, insignificant in worldly standards, or a person who is completely different to those in a church. They visit a church, yet they cannot contribute in any manner. They can't contribute financially. They can't really serve in church. They really, as the text puts it, our weaker brother. And instead of serving them and including them, the conduct of those in the church actually excludes this person and pushes them out of the community of faith. And this is detrimental to any person. If we push those who are weak in faith, those who are insignificant, out of our community, it's like throwing a weak sheep to the wolves. The world will devour them. Their faith will be shipwrecked. This is what Jesus is warning us as a Christian community about. We should not cause the faith of those who are insignificant, those who are weak in faith, to be shipwrecked by our conduct. Jesus is reminding us to be our weaker brother's keeper. It's reminding the disciples to be aware of this in their day. And this is something we should be aware of today as well. Now this warning is followed by a discussion on sin, where Jesus takes the focus away from endangering the faith of others to endangering our own faith, as he tells the disciples the things which are dangerous for their lives as Christians. It's an interesting passage. Jesus says, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. For it is better to enter the kingdom of God with either one eye, one hand, or one foot than with both, not entering the kingdom of God. Now, it should be obvious to us that this shouldn't be taken literally. There have been some in church history who have taken this literally. But I don't think the hyperbole in this diminishes what it seeks to teach at all. I actually think that the hyperbole or the exaggeration in this text points us to the intent or the meaning behind it. It points us to the offense of the gospel and the authority that Jesus has, that nothing, not even our eyes, our hands, or our feet, should stand in the way of eternal life. Nothing that we value should stand in the way of us entering eternal life. So if eyes, hands, and feet are insignificant, how insignificant are things like cell phones or laptops or things that cause us to sin today? These things are even less important than eyes, hands, and feet. Jesus tells us that the kingdom of God is greater than the things which are most important to us. The same is true for anything that causes us to sin. It might be valuable for us now, but it's not valuable if we think about what we offer up when we keep those things. We're offering up the kingdom of God, our eternal inheritance, if we don't offer up the things which keep us bound in sin. We should rid ourselves of all things which cause us to sin. As Jesus says, if your eyes cause you to sin, take it out. If your cell phone, your laptop, or anything today causes you to sin, throw it away, for it is better enter the kingdom of God without those things than to have a 
nice shiny cell phone or laptop and not enter the kingdom of God. Jesus then brings this whole discussion on discipleship and the cost of following together with mentioning of salt and fire. Now this is a very puzzling passage. Many of us don't understand the significance of salt and fire. I did some study on this and I think the best way to understand this is within the context of the temple sacrifices which the Jews made. So fire was very important to the Jews. As the Israelites would burn offerings, whether it was a bull, a ram, sometimes birds, and this burnt offering was said to be, that the, the fragrance of this was said to be acceptable and pleasing to God's smell, right? Salt was also a way in which the Israelites were said to be in covenant with God. Salt was a, a sign of the covenant, but it was also required to accompany any of their sacrifices, so in the, in the background of that, the background of the Jewish understanding of salt and fire within the context of sacrifice, I think what Jesus is trying to say here is that discipleship, similar to sacrifice, is something which should be consuming, totally consuming. As the fire consumed the sacrifice in its entirety, following Jesus should consume our lives in its entirety. Rather than consuming us with frustration and failure when we trip and fall in sin, or when trials come over our path, Jesus is telling His disciples to take up their cross and follow Him, to nurture the faith of other believers, to receive those who are insignificant, to willingly forsake the things nearest to us which cause us to sin. And if we do these things, in the words of Paul, will be like a living sacrifice, pleasing to God. And this helps explain the puzzling phrase in 49, salted with fire. And we know that fire or being tested by fire always means trials and tribulations. Whether this means being ridiculed at work for being the only Christian, or as some of our brothers and sisters in the East who really give up their lives, who die for the sake of Christ. This passage reminds us that suffering is not simply a painful necessity that's linked to following Jesus, but that suffering is an offering itself, pleasing unto God, a seasoning or salting with fire. If fires of trials, tribulations come to us as a consequence of following Jesus, we should view this as a great thing. They don't follow us. They follow Him as they have followed Him 2,000 years ago. Trials and tribulations follow Jesus. As we follow Him, we should not expect anything else. This roadmap that Jesus therefore sketched for us today starts and ends with the destination in mind. He tells us where we're going. and He also shows us how we're going to get there. So with this full picture in mind, Let's go over this once more. Let's look at this map once more. As I've sketched out what Jesus is showing us, let's see once more. So Jesus starts with a discussion on discipleship. He, dis he starts this with His death and resurrection, and it ends with trials and tribulations. It starts with suffering and hope, and it ends with suffering and hope. 
This is the cost we bear as we follow Jesus. Throughout this passage, we're reminded that this kingdom that we're looking forward to, this destination that this journey leads to, well, this kingdom is upside down in worldly standards. We could actually say our world is upside down since the kingdom of God is right way up, however you want to phrase that. But in this kingdom that we're looking forward to, this kingdom that we're journeying to, those who are last will be first. And we are called to imitate the one who is leading us there. We are called to imitate Christ by serving those around us. The very least of society, those who cannot repay us, those who carry no benefit when we serve them, we are called to lay our lives down for those people. Who are the people that the Lord places on your heart as I'm speaking or as I've spoken today? Who are those people that you find it really difficult to serve? The kingdom of God that we're looking forward to wants us to be challenged by people. Whether it's in serving them or whether it is in accepting or including them. In seminary, we're constantly being told that the difficult part of being a minister or being part of a church organization is people. People make ministry really difficult since people are really messy. They're sinful. They can hurt you. And I would say the same for being a Christian. I would say the most difficult part in being a Christian is to be with other Christians. It's difficult being with others. How easy would it be to be a monk in the mountains, just reading your Bible all day and praying with no challenges, nobody to serve, nobody challenging you on what you believe. But Jesus calls us to a different life, to serve those around us, to lay our lives down. These are our brothers that we should look out for. We should not cause their faith to be shipwrecked. We should not cause them to stumble. And as we look out for them, we should look inwardly to the things we hold dear, the things that grip our hearts as we seek to follow Christ, the things which cause us to sin. We should rid ourselves of those things. The cost of following Jesus is a great cost. It will ultimately cost you your life. It's not easy. But our hope is ultimately that as we follow Jesus on this roadmap that is laid out, we have a sure hope that He is the one leading us he is the one who called us to follow Him. And He is faithful as He is with us always. As we've read in Psalm 23, He will make us lie down in green pastures. He will lead us beside still waters. He's with us when we go through the valley of the shadow of death. When we go through suffering, He's with us. He will provide comfort for us on this road of discipleship. And ultimately, our hope as Christians... He will provide us with eternal rest. This is what we look forward to. And this is our eternal hope. Let's pray.